Hi, this is Glenn Hughes, and you're listening to Focus on Metal. Hey, Metalhead, Scott Thompson here, welcoming you to yet another dose of Focus on Metal. So this week, we wrap up our little mini-series on the sophomore self-titled Lynch Mob release. So back on episode 554, we talked with bassist Anthony Esposito. Then on the last episode, 555, we started in with our discussion with uh, Robert Mason. And we'll be wrapping up that conversation with Robert on this week's episode. And we did a similar thing a while back on the debut Lynch Mob release, Wicked Sensation. So if you go up to uh, focusonmetalpod.com and search out Lynch Mob, then that uh, multi-episode deal will come up if you're interested in that. And we actually talked with Anthony on that one as well. But this week, as I said, we are going back again, talking more with vocalist Robert Mason as uh, we started off this week, digging in with his interaction with Keith Olsen during the uh, tracking of vocals for this one and talking with... uh, his interaction with other singers that Keith worked with and all this, but lots of good stuff once again with Robert Mason on this episode of Focus on Metal. Robert, did you sit down with Keith at any stage and ask him about working, doing vocals with Lou Graham, you know, and Wilson, any of the major singers that he'd done records with in the past? What's funny is I know all those records that he had done, and... He would just magically, it was, it was, I probably described it as nerve wracking in the past, but I don't think it really was. Might have been making too much out of it. But qu- quite honestly, one day Lou Graham would show up, show up. The next day it was like, oh, I think Steve Perry might show up today. I'm like, while I'm doing vocals? <laughs> you know, but then, but then Lou shows up and he just sits in the back of the room and I'm just blasting out a couple of songs and I, and he, I come back in the, in the control room and he's uh, from the live room and, and, and it's like, Hey, like, Hey kid, wow. You got a blistering set of pipes on you. Like Lou Graham told me that. Like, I, I, thank you, Lou Graham. Like, you know, I don't even know what to do. Uh, cause I was such a fan, you know? And he, and I've gotten friendly with him, you know, through the years and seen him a bunch of times and, and a man he's been through a lot, but I, never fails. Whenever I see him, it's always, you know, wonderful. He treats me like a peer instead of, like, the kid and the fan, you know, nice. which is wonderful. Uh, Glenn was really the same way. I mean, so it's, yeah, there were big-name guys uh, that just kind of showed up every once in a while. Because it's Keith Olsen. Was George there at all when you were tracking vocals? Uh, a little bit. Would he su- Would he suggest anything? I don't recall him suggesting too much. Maybe a, one or two things here and there, okay. based on based on like themes he was playing. But I, I think it was really put on Keith to be that guy because Keith has such an amazing song sense. He, he was an amazing producer, and he's known as a song guy. He's taken, you know, he took a lot of those former songs. I mean, I've heard all the stories and and made them. Be- 
better and made them into what they are with the fans here today on records. So I trusted him implicitly. Um, tell me about recording vocals for Tie Your Mother Down. Of course, Freddie Mercury sang that in a studio with Glenn Hughes. Was that intimidating at all? You're tackling a Freddie song and you've got Glenn in there helping you. I don't know that Glenn did every song with me. Okay. As I recall, there were days where he wasn't there and days where he was. There was a lot of weight on us to do that. I think George initially wanted to do a really, really obscure Queen song. But I just love Tire Mother Down. And I think it was maybe that was a Keith and, and it, probably Anthony was on our side too in the uh, in the debate for you know what Queen song to cover. They're really only, it wasn't, we have to cover a Queen song no matter what. It was like, well, I would love to, George would love to, and something that's that we can do justice to that kind of fits us, doesn't go too too far outside the mold. And I just love the song. I'm sorry, what was the question? I've had a lot no, of were you, was it <laughs> Was it intimidating to handle a track that Freddie Mercury had sang on? Well, there's a lot of weight that comes along with it. Intimidating was not the word I would use. Okay. I, I realized that there's a lot to live up to. Yeah. And, and perhaps a lot of scrutiny. And, you know, if you, I mean, if we really watched it, I had sung a lot of covers. So for me, I didn't look upon it like some sacrilegious thing. I was like, I'm, I freaking love this song and I, I'm going to try to do the snot out of it, you know? Yeah. Give it a go. So when, when you first heard the record, what, what was your initial reaction? Were you ecstatic? I was pretty stoked. I thought that it was, as it was turning out, maybe a little slicker. I think the record company, I remember Bob Krasnow coming in for a listen, you know, when the, when the label heads come in and Keith has the listening party and it's all smiles and they all sit in the room and play it through the big speakers and, hey man, and I said, what do you think? Doesn't this sound great? You know, it's kind of like, it felt like a, a sales job, salesmanship more than anything else at that point because we attract but. 90% of everything. Hearing it in the studio, I was pretty excited. This is my, my first monstrous barbecue, you know? Yeah. I remember the demos to a lot of these songs, and I remember George and I both listening to the likes of, uh, like, Facelift and Bad Motor Finger, you know? And it's not, like, total Seattle, but those, to me, were, like, metal bands. They had a, they had a rock singer, rock guitars, big beats, you know? It was, it was a little dirgy and, you know, you could see the Black Sabbath influences. You could hear the ominous undertones of all of that music. But to us, we, we didn't label like, oh, it's grunge and we're rock and we're, you know, this and they're that. You know, it wasn't factioned like that in my mind. But uh, the point I'm making is the demos were much heavier. And I think through the process of writing with Keith and the production in his studio, it made it a little more slick than perhaps we all wanted but we trusted Keith and then there was the label and it's, you know, it's their money and it's, it's their record. It's as it, as it turns out, historically a little mistimed. I mean, I've had plenty of people come up to me and say, Oh, I love that record. And if that had come out, you know, two years earlier and all that kind of stuff you hear and like, Oh, well, great. That's great. I don't know. I have not, I have not cracked the code to invent a time machine. So I guess that's, you know, <laughs> why talk about stuff that you, you know, in the past that you can't change. Um, but yeah, I think that overall, very produced and slick. And it may have taken a little of the danger and vibe away from that. Um, but perhaps that's what it 
the label wanted because the way the first record was put together was a little darker. They wanted something a little more like our record turned out. The way Anthony said it to me when I brought up, I asked him about, did he want to work with Max Norman again, who did Wicked? And he said that George, in a way, wanted more sales and one of the ways he, he he felt he could get it was by getting Keith in because Keith had had massive success with the likes of Whitesnake. Even now when you listen back to Keith's records that he did around that time, he did Kingdom Come, he did Magnum, he did Yourselves, they all, they all do have that slick sound to it. So you guys are hiring him and you had to know that that was really the way that the record was going to sound anyway. I believe so. In hindsight, now I can see the the vast sonic difference between a lot of the demos that we just cut ourselves. You know, in, in that stage, like I said, some of the some of those ideas that were there during my audition, um, and a lot of them. You know, I mean, obviously, you're not going to come up with the greatest lyrics in the world right off the bat, unless you have a bunch sitting there and you know, in notepads, ready to go and fit them into a song idea. So a lot of it was just melodic ideas. You know, where you, where you sing just ver- just vowels, you know, <laughs> not a lot of consonants. Or, you, you know, I think someone described it as singing in Chinese just to kind of get an idea out and flesh a, a melody out that works over the chords. But um, some of those demos, man, I, they're probably somewhere. Someone has them on either dat tapes or whatever. And they were a little rough and darker. And yeah, you know, I, I state it was a wonderful experience making that record with Keith. He's a legend. Um, one of the things Anthony also said was that initially you couldn't go on tour because uh, George went in and did a solo record. Is that, that how you remember too? We were on tour and he made a deal to get an advance to do a solo record. I think we stopped touring ah. because of uh, he was going, you know, we saw it as a money grab at the time to be dead honest with him. I think he was building a house and he needed, you know, I remember that Oh well, he'll get another you know seventy five grand advance, and he can go build this house in in Pinnacle Peak or whatever. And at the time, I thought, why do you need to do a solo record? Lynch Mob is your solo band; it's named after you for fuck's sake, you know. Yeah. Um. So were you, were you guys on the road with Warrant at the time, or was that after? I'm. I don't know whether the negotiation to do a solo record happened while we were doing uh, theaters, maybe before the Warrant thing. Okay. But it was right around that time, and I remember being in the bus on the road, you know, talking about all this in the back lounge. But yeah, we finished in, uh, it's sometime in the fall, from the summer to the fall with Warren, or into winter or whatever, you know, like shortly before the holidays, we all came home. And then it was George doing a solo record, which I thought was odd. What are your memories of the Warren tour? Because you're you're in a unique situation now. You're actually in that band. Um, you're seeing you're seeing that band play. I don't know how often you actually hung around and watched them, but you know you're dealing with a multi platinum act at that stage, coming out with you know Dog Eat Dog, which it didn't sell as well as well as the previous ones. But they are a bigger band than you guys, so you're probably wanting to stand there and watch them and see how they do things. Which I did. I would. Uh Typical scenario, because Lane and I were friends. I don't know if you're familiar with that uh, 
I'm sure I've even, I might've even told you that story about Janie and I made friends while we were doing that Lich Mob record in LA. Okay. And that was part of the reason why we were picked to be a support act for them. Uh, you know, one of those nights sitting around going at FM station and going through a drink or two and talking about just, you know, BSing about whatever. And he's like, Hey man, you guys are going out with us. We're going to, you know, you got a record coming out. We have a record coming out. We have a world tour. It'll be freaking awesome. You're going to be on our tour. And I thought, well, okay, whatever. Maybe that'll happen. Maybe it won't, but it did. So, you know, came to fruition. So we're out there. I would go play our show, go back to the band dressing rooms, which are like the team room, you know, like the local sports arena or whatever we were playing. Mm -hmm. Get a shower, maybe work out or whatever, you know, go to catering, grab some food after my show because I was probably 138 pounds of nothing at that point. I was wasting, I waste away to nothing on the road because <laughs> I don't eat that much on show days. <laughs> so, and then go up and stand on stage left or stage right and watch Warren. Yeah, I mean, I watched a lot. Okay. So the end with Lynch Mob for you, did Anthony leave first or what order did you guys leave the band? Can you remember? Oh, vividly. Ant was out. Ant wanted out. Uh, he definitely quit first. I remember in the winter, maybe the very end of 92 or very beginning of 90, probably January of 93, George asking me to, uh, he was in between houses. He was having that house built. He was staying at the Princess or something like that, one of the resorts in Scottsdale. And I went to his place and Mick was there. And he said, okay, Ant's out, but we can continue and we can make a third Lynch Mob record. We can take the advance. And you know, I think the pitch was we can make it for, for less than the last time, pick a you know more cost-friendly producer and team and not spend as much money and pocket some of the advance ourselves and have a, you know, have a little income. That was the lure, you know, and just here, just do this. We're going to, and I think we're going to get Jeff Pilsen as vividly. And Mick and I, and George are sitting in George's uh, condo or apartment. And I said, well, that sounds like docking to me. And in, I thought about it and I knew Anthony had quit and I was pretty disillusioned with it. The whole thing at the time is, you know, uh, how it had happened Ant quit. George is doing a solo record. What the fuck, you know, yeah. um, this is my band. I mean, it's the first, you know, what, what is happening to this band? And in my naivete, I said, uh, well, if you're going to get Jeff, I mean, no slack to Jeff, but it's three quarters of Dawkins. Why don't you get Don and call it Dawkin? And I think George just, he was pretty taken aback when I said that. And I said, I don't think I want to do this. Put out a Lynch Mob record in, in what would have been 1994. I mean, think about what the musical landscape and the, what the market was like in 94. Yeah, I know. What sort of record would we, would we change? What would we do? And would, would that be accepted? And I said, we should go get Don and call it Dokken. And I I guess I was out right then and there. So they never even auditioned a new bass player after Anthony left. They didn't even get that far. No, they had suggested Jeff, who's a wonderful guy, great producer. We're friends, you know, <laughs> but so, so, at the time. So Robert, like, they, they wanted Jeff to produce or they wanted Jeff to play bass? To play bass. Ah, okay. Maybe both. I mean, who knows, but... Certainly to play bass, you know, to, to replace Anthony. I, you know, I heard Anthony quit, which I kind of already knew, you know, but that was the way it was pitched to me. Anthony quit. We could do a, a third record, take a bunch of the advance for, for our personal selves, you know, 
make a cheaper record and because the budget was still probably half a million 750 something like that to make records for lynch mob you know in contractually plus 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 you know plus your costs plus this you know plus promotion plus what all the other little particulars so could we have made another record of course would it have been pretty damn cool maybe um like i said i was what was i 27 28 i just turned 28 so I just thought, okay, I'll, you know what, fuck this, I'll go back to New York. They were probably shocked you did that, were they? Uh, in all likelihood, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Never really talked about it. Yeah, yeah. Because, like, the thing with Jeff as well at the time, he was with Dio. Right. Yeah, so, yeah, I, I can understand your your frustration there, you know? Well, you know, so it's one of those things, I was... Uh, it felt like it was over too soon because I had not joined the band until what was that July of 91 mm. um, did people around you say you were crazy to leave uh, I heard a couple of those yeah okay but I was I don't know I was kind of supported by if I explained myself I could explain the logic of it if there was I mean if it could be construed as logic at this point you know I look back on it now not with regret but you know you always go okay if I had made a if I had put my signal on and gone right instead of left, what would have happened in that scenario? Made a third Lynch Mob record. It felt like I was just doing it for the money, but it wasn't going to be received as well. I saw what had happened in 92. It felt like Seattle and all that music, because of the record companies, had taken over the world. And that's what the radio was playing. And that's, you know, we were kind of tossed aside to a certain extent. And didn't end up getting the big monstrous kiss tour like we thought we were going to i think something happened internally and they canceled a bunch of dates so we ended up doing big clubs and, and theaters on our own and then got on the warrant tour so it was it was disheartening for me all around in a certain way kind of bittersweet to be playing granted we got great great little leg of the tour with warrant but after that ant's gone <laughs> you know, they want yeah. to plug in another bass player who was in Dokken. I'm faced with being, once again, feeling like I'm. it's Dokken with me just inserted in it. And that's not a formula for success in 1993, 4 or 5, whatever. It just yeah. didn't seem like anything. So what did you do immediately after you left Lynch Mob? Uh, still had an apartment here. Stayed for a little while in Arizona. Decided to move back east, uh, put a bunch of stuff in storage here, and went back east. Tried to plug myself into the, the session singer world. You know, was writing songs, working with a couple of people, just casually, not really, really with any strong direction. I decided I did not want to be a jingle singer. Uh, as I recall, Joe Lynn Turner was doing that at the time, and Joe and I are buds. Hey, everybody, this is Joe Lynn Turner, and you're listening to Focus on Metal. Keep it rock and keep it locked. And I know I had an opportunity to kind of plug myself into that world where you sing about, you know, Coca-Cola or Pringles or whatever. Hmm. You know, and then you have to carry, at the time, you have to carry a pager on you at all times. or have a New York City phone number or else you won't get called, you know, that sort of thing. And I... I was under 30 and just thought, well, I don't want to do it this way. I don't, I think I have another, I think I have more live music being on stage, being a singer in a rock band in my world. I don't want to just surrender myself to being a jingle singer. Cause every person I talked to like that 
would always see me and say, oh, we got to get a band together. I'm like, you know, it was one of those, those guys are making great money. Grass is always greener situations. Okay. So, so Robert, what are your favorite songs on the Lynch Mob record you did? Uh, wow. That's a tough one. I, I mean, I sang them. We wrote them. So regardless of how things shake out, you know, in the, in the monetary end, I a lot of that is, is bits of me. I really like doing, uh, I have a great, great memory of singing no good in the studio. I was, I was not getting, I was not getting the, the grit and the anger that they wanted or that we thought that's the song called for, and, you know, and I'm singing a little too cleanly. And Keith said, okay, man, we're taking a break. We walked into the lounge and made uh, what he was calling the purple hooters. It was like a martini with shamboard, like that raspberry or whatever is liquor, mm-hmm. liqueur. liqueur. Hmm. So they were like martinis, except they were a little, that little you know, light purple kind of fruit kind of tinge to them. So after three of those each, <laughs> we sat there and drank. And he's like, now nah, you think you can do this? I'm like, fuck yeah, I'm going to do this. I, I, I think I can do anything at this point. Keith. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of hammered. And, uh, you know, I mean, that's, that always brings me, it's funny how if you sing something or if you're, if you're experiencing it and doing it, I guess it's for actors making a movie too. When you, uh, when you listen or hear back to it or watch it back, you know exactly where you were. It actually brings up like sights, sounds, feelings, it's emotions. So, I mean, I had a wonderful time singing every song on that record. It's, I know, it's not a cop-out to say I had a great time in the studio doing that. I guess, you know, Dream Until Tomorrow got me to do a little more of that ballady stuff. Uh, you know, The Secret and some of that other stuff. Like I was saying earlier, explored the lower side of my vocal range. Hmm. And that was interesting and kind of eye-opening to me at the time. So, I mean, there you go. Is that an answer? I yeah. Don't know if that's a good answer. When, when is the last time? <laughs> when is the last time you listened to this record from start to finish, or do you even listen to the stuff you've recorded in the past? Nah, I don't. As a rule, it's not that I have an aversion to it. I just don't. Um, Maybe only when you have to tour. Maybe war, you know. Yeah, on a plane. I think I, I, I haven't listened to it front to back in maybe maybe ever. I don't know, a long-ass time. Okay. But, uh, but I know for sure I've listened to bits here and there. It feels like almost weird on an airplane, you know, with, with the headphones or your in-ears in and no one else can hear what you're listening to. Everybody's listening to their own music on their phones or whatever nowadays. Because I fly a lot, you know, we do a bunch of fly dates with Warrant. So maybe a, a track or two. Did, um, did you keep any of the memorabilia from your time in Lynch Mob? T-shirts, maybe tour programs? And anything like that? I've definitely got a t-shirt or two sitting in a box with every other thing I've got from, you know. Okay. Chronologically, I've got boxes of swag. Okay. Um, it's funny, Metal Edge magazines, because there's a funny story about my mom being at the local grocery store, you know, looking at Metal Edge going, this is my son, you know, <laughs> in, my, in my town. So I think I have one or two of those that the band was featured in. Um, and honestly, that's about it. I've got, I've got outtakes, prints of outtakes of Lynch Mob photo shoots 
a couple that I have framed. Nice. But I mean, you know, every everybody had we all had motorcycle jackets that were airbrushed with the with the you know the logo that they the band gave me when I got in the band. They're like here, you're <laughs> you're one of us now. Here you go, you know. Okay, were you a, were you a bike guy? Because Anthony was telling me that you know Always. bikes were a big thing with the band. Yeah, I mean, one of the first times they went out there. I mean, I didn't I didn't have a motorcycle at the time, and I think I borrowed one of Amps, and we all just I got on. I mean, I I can ride anything, you know. Okay. And I was I I was I went through the mini bike and the dirt bike thing a little bit. My my parents were deathly afraid of that, so I was not prohibited when I was very young to have a bike. But. Uh, yeah, one of the first days in Lynch Mob, asked like, "Do you ride?" I'm like, and you know, I'm brand new to the band. What am I going to say? No. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, of course. And I knew what I was doing on a motorcycle. I just didn't own one at the time. Okay. And I was like, all right, we're going to take the bikes. We're going to go down to Tempe and go see, you know, whatever. Okay. I think we, I think we took the bikes to go see Warren. We went down from Cave Creek Road down to Compton Terrace to go see Warren in the summer of '91. And that was the first time I got up on stage with Warrant for their encore. It was Warrant Trickster Firehouse. Nice. And I knew the fire, and I knew the Firehouse guys. And yeah. uh, you know, went up, went up on their bus, went up on the Warrant bus, and they they suggested we come up on the encore. And I think I don't know if everybody did, but I know Mick and I did definitely for one of the Warrant encores, either American Band or Fight for Your Right to Party. You know, they always used to end with one of those. On the Blood, Sweat, and Beers tour. And I remember getting up on stage and Janie saying, this is the new singer in Lynch Mob. Nice. And that was, the, that was the first time I was up on stage with those guys. Nice. Final question, Robert, and it's a Warren question. And when Anthony brought it up yesterday that you toured with Warren on the Doggy Dog record, that got me thinking because I interviewed Joey earlier this year and we went in depth about that record. And you have a unique perspective on it now because... You toured with the band on that album, and now you're in the band, and you're singing some of the songs on that album. And to me, that's my favorite Warrant record. Um, I don't think it got a fair shake at the time. I'm interested to hear your thoughts on that on that album. What what you actually think about it? Well, it was obviously a, if you want to call it a, a left turn for Warrant's historical past. Clearly a darker record um, that was, you know, Michael Wagner's record. And I love Michael Wagner. Uh, Joey and, and Eric both really stepped up as guitar players coming out of the shadow of all of the Mike Flamer, you know, at the time, that whole rumor mill. I mean, mm-hmm. when I first got in the band, Joe, Joey probably told you this too, but when I first got in the band, he, he came to me and said, okay, well, this is what really happened. We were young and naive, and we're like, I, I guess this is the way this happens. And we weren't coming up with, you know, solos like Bo wanted, you know, the the Bo Hill. And he had his pocket guy, had his session guy, had Mike Slammer there to, to do it. And we're like, okay, cool. But for Doggy Dog, Joey went and woodshedded on guitar. Uh, it At the time when it came out, I remember it feeling like, oh, and seeing the 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 promo photos are like, okay, they're getting darker. They're getting more serious. But what people don't understand who never got to see warrant live back in the day. And I'm one of them. I never got it, but I understand this is, this is the way it was. 
the band was always heavier live than they than you would ever know if you just listened to the poppy singles, the power ballads, the you know, the cheese my cherry pie, like the you know that sort of rhyming scheme, that kind of thing. I mean, Uncle Tom's Cabin might have been the only clue for because Janie was great with melody and had a real good pop sense. It seemed like he loved like the seventies and all that kind of stuff. Uh, which was like singles and pop based a lot of the seventies rock or what you heard on the radio anyway. Hmm. But Doggy Dog was a was a really cool record. I it was more it was more okay, Warren's getting serious now. Warren's Warren can really show you that they really play now. I, is that uh yeah so so what what how that, many so- that's pretty much yeah so that 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 album's 30 years old so how many songs in the warren set from doggy doggy are playing now uh it varies uh, it varies by how much time we get on stage we had an interesting thing happen with some of these shows this year with the skids well we'll come in and it's like us and skid row and winger so skid row at the top of the bill rather so we're in the middle mm. and and we'll get told you know by the by our tour manager or whatever we see in the contracts like we only have 45 minutes tonight like what because we're used to playing you know 75 80 whatever maybe up to 90 or whatever so if we get a shorter time slot we understand that playing songs from that third record we may only get one because it's got to be first and second record heavy and maybe we want to do louder harder faster or maybe we want to do something else like that okay you know it's kind of like the shorter the sets get, the less ballads we get to play because the band has so many. But then the flip of that coin is they were singles and they were huge and people want to hear them. And we know that there are arguably seven to nine Warrant songs that you have to play at a Warrant show. Yeah. Well, if you have a set where you can only play 10 or 11 songs, what do you do? You know, it's, there's always a fan who says, oh, I want to hear, you know, whatever, Bitter Pill or something, something that was never a single and, and pretty obscure as time has played out, as history has played that, out. That'd be me. <laughs> I get it. Richard, I get it. And believe me, I, I'm a fan, too. So, yeah. you know, I was a fan. I was a fan after my Lynch Mob show who watched from the monitors, like from stage left. <laughs> so I get it. Yeah. But all that said, there's a, uh, there's a compromise to be made for, I guess making yeah it feels like a least common denominator sort of decision but you know you play the hits look at poison i'll I'll tell robert robert i'll tell you an interesting story right so i'm i'm from ireland right none of these bands really came to ireland when i was living there and i remember moving over here i'm living here 13 years now and i remember going to see poison i think they were on one of the the summer tours with def leppard so poison came out for an hour and I'd never seen them before, and I'm a fan. And I think they played nine songs. Two of them were covers. Um, they did have a drum solo, and they did have uh, a guitar solo. And when they played the songs, they were great. But I was scratching my head, like, play more songs. Get rid of all the other shit. Play the fucking songs I've never seen you play. Right. You know? <laughs> but... That's what people, you know, that's what they want to do. And So, where are you? Are you a Belfast guy or a Dublin guy? Oh, no, no. Guy? I'm from Waterford in Southern Ireland, but I, I, lived okay. for, I lived in Dublin for 20 years. Gotcha. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Having, knowing the, the Black Star Riders guys, and, and I don't know Ricky too well, but I hear a lot about him through Robbie Crane because Robbie's been playing in Warren for that's a bit. That's right. That's right. 
And he's and I remember seeing the Almighty back in the day, like in the Cat Club in New York in eighty. What would that have been? Eighty eight or eighty nine? Yeah. So, so I was a you know, I'm a fan. I'm a, you know, he's a he's everything from what I hear is a good guy. And I and you know, and it's funny because we never really met and sat down and talked. But I'm looking forward to that. I might actually take a trip with Rob when he's got some of these Black Star gigs and go over go overseas with him for a minute. Ricky, 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 I've interviewed him. He's awesome. Uh, yeah. A quick, quick story before I leave you go, Robert. All right. I, in 1990, I saw Megadeth, The Almighty, and Alice in Chains play in Dublin. So I saw Ricky in 1990 on that bill. Oh, fuck. So, so and that, are you familiar with Dave Mustaine's story in, in Antrim, uh, the riots he caused, and then he he wrote Holy Wars about it? That was yeah. that was the first show in Dublin, in, in Ireland, that they played after that incident. And David Ellison told me that they hired a private jet to fly into Dublin, bring him to the venue, and the minute the gig was over, to bring him back to the jet and get out of there. Yeah, well, good for him then. Yeah, they're not going to... Have- I got his head separated from his body. Yeah, but it was, it was an amazing show. But listen, Robert, <laughs> you've given me a shit ton of time. It's been a pleasure. I really appreciate it as well. Thanks. Okay, Robert. Have a, have a nice weekend. Yeah, as you as well. All right, take care. And that will be a wrap for our little three-episode mini-series on the self-titled Lynch Mob release. So everything you wanted to know that Richie wasn't afraid to ask. And as I had mentioned on the prior episode, these days Robert's main gig is fronting Warrant. And if you want to find out what those guys are up to, go catch them live, get some merch, whatever, then you want to head up to warrantrocks.com. And what is up for the next episode of Focus on Metal, you ask? Well, as of right now, and you know, this shit changes, right now we are looking to run a discussion that we had with journeyman bassist Chuck Wright. Chuck has uh, some new solo stuff coming out called Sheltering Sky, but also diving into a lot of his past history with things like, of course, Quiet Riot and all kinds of stuff. But uh, right now, as I'm sitting here today mixing episode 556, I'm thinking that 557 will be a really nice discussion with uh, with Chuck Wright. So some uh, Quiet Riot stuff in there, some Alice Cooper stuff in there, and, you know, other stuff too, because Chuck's done a lot of different stuff. But, uh, yeah, I'm thinking right now that's probably what it's going to be. But you never know. Could be a discussion episode slips in there. Yeah, yeah we just it's kind of fluid. And uh, we'll see. But right now I'm thinking that's what we'll be doing. But uh, for this week, that's it. There ain't no more. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So for Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, have yourselves a great metal week. And until we talk to you again, as always... Remember, focus on metal. Everything else is insignificant. Still here? It's over. Go home.